Scripture reading today is from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up from the poor from the he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Good morning. Have to get used to this new space, but it's, it's good to see everyone here. Thank you for being here, especially if you're visiting with us. We very much appreciate your presence. You're such an encouragement to us. And we, we hope that this service will be an encouragement to you and will glorify our God. And we hope that today, especially as we open up God's word for a few minutes, that, that you will hear the message of the gospel, that you will hear uh, not just of um, our broken state and our sinful state as humans, but of God's love and God's grace and God's plan for us. We're going to be in the Old Testament today in the book of 1 Samuel. Our, our, our main text will be this, these verses that Randy has just read for us. If you have a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We'll also have the texts up on the screen, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version uh, throughout the sermon. But we want to look at this character named Hannah. You've probably heard the name Hannah before. It's a pretty common uh, girl's name, but it's, it's, the name comes from this, this character um, in the, at the very beginning of 1 Samuel. We only read a little bit about her in 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 3, and then she kind of disappears from the story. But her role in the story is much larger than the amount of text uh, that is devoted to her. And that's kind of going to kind of be part of the, the point of this lesson is that a very ordinary character is used by God for extraordinary things. So we're going to look at Hannah's song today, this song that we just read, in which Hannah says, Not by might shall a man prevail. Another way to translate that would be, somewhat paradoxically, Not by might shall a person be mighty. So let's think about that idea for just a few minutes this morning. Not by might shall a person be mighty. So we want to start by getting a bit of context for uh, this song that we just read. This, we, we could call this a song. We could call it a prayer, a prophecy, a psalm, even a sermon. Uh, this is a, a powerful uh, utterance from, from Hannah that, that God gives to her. 
And that's the first point that I want to make, is that Hannah is a very ordinary character, a very unassuming character, and yet she has an extraordinary message. Uh, I mean, think, look at the poetry of, of this song. Look at the, the exalted ideas and the, the depths of this psalm. And so the first point that I want to make this morning about the song is that God writes lofty songs for lowly singers. God writes lofty songs for lowly singers. One of my favorite kinds of um, internet videos to watch, and I'm guessing it's probably true for a lot of you as well, is the kind of video where an unassuming, ordinary-looking person is able to do something extraordinary and wow the crowd. I remember one of the very first ones of these that, that I remember getting really popular, I guess, after YouTube began, was Paul Potts. Anybody remember Paul Potts? Anybody at all? No Anglophiles in the audience? Okay, we've got a couple. All right, so uh, you may remember the show Britain's Got Talent. There are tons of versions of that, right? America's Got Talent, Kids Got Talent, I don't know, Dogs Got Talent, there's probably tons of them. Um, but Paul Potts was on, the, I, b I believe, the first series of Britain's Got Talent, and of course there was Piers Morgan as a judge and Simon Cowell, the scary Simon Cowell who always has the scowl on his face. And this sort of shabby, uh, I mean, I hate to say it, kind of sad sack looking guy trots out onto the stage and they say, well, what's your talent? What are you going to do for us today? And he says, I'm going to sing opera. And you can just see Simon Cowell's face fall. Like, okay, get on with it. And then, of course, he just breaks out into a glorious um, opera number and just blows the judges away, blows the crowds away. Simon Cowell's face breaks out in a huge smile, and it just became a sensation. Uh, he got his own album deal from, from that performance. I think he may have even won the competition. Um, this is probably over a decade ago now. But, but the idea there, the, something that really catches our imagination when we watch a video like that, or hear a story like that, is that it's an unassuming person, it's an ordinary person who is able to do something far beyond what we would expect or believe about them. And one of the, the points of Hannah's story that we're going to return to now is that Hannah is just such a person, that Hannah is a lowly singer. She is somebody who has been kicked around by life. She is someone in distress. And, sh and yet, God gives her a lofty song to sing. Let's get a bit of context about Hannah's story. Now, I believe uh, the women in their study this quarter have already looked at Hannah's story a little bit, so you probably are familiar with the details. But just to get a bit of context from chapter 1, so turn back a page in your Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 1, the story begins with a man named Elkanah. And Elkanah has two wives, as many men did um, in some of these early Bible stories, and that, of course, creates rivalry in the family. One wife has children, the other one does not. And the one who does not have children, the one who is infertile, is Hannah. And the other wife provokes her and makes fun of her and teases her for this. So it just, it just adds greater misery to Hannah. And whenever they would go up to worship, it says this rival would, would irritate her. And this goes on and on and on. And year by year, when they go to uh, the sanctuary of the Lord at Shiloh, Hannah becomes more and more despondent. And on this particular occasion, she won't even eat. And her husband tries to console her. She won't be consoled. She prays to the Lord, weeps bitterly, and she talks to God about her affliction. She is an afflicted, lowly, beaten down person because of this, this lack of children. Eli, the priest, to make it worse, 
calls her a drunk because she's praying and no sounds coming out, but her lips are moving. So she is childless. Her rival irritates her. She's, she feels afflicted. And then even the priest of God thinks think she's a drunk. Can it get any lower than that? She's troubled in spirit, she explains. But she says, I'm not drunk. I'm speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And as a result of Hannah's prayer, God remembers her. And her face is no longer sad after she receives a message from Eli that the Lord will hear her prayer. And it's in this context, then, after this anxious, troubled, vexed woman uh, prays to the Lord, is told by the priest that the Lord will, will grant her request, that uh, her situation changes. The Lord remembers her, and then she's able to pray this great prayer uh, that we just read. And I want us to turn our attention back to the prayer now. Notice the language that Hannah uses time and time again in this prayer. There's this language of raising and exalting and lifting up. Notice how she begins. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. And skip down a few verses to verse 6. The Lord raises up. He exalts, he raises up, he lifts. You see the pattern there? People are often brought low by life, and God sees them, he, he remembers them, and he lifts them out of that condition. This is what God does. This is who he is. This is his characteristic. He raises the poor from the dust and exalts them. So God's attention to Hannah in this story not only raises her out of her predicament, it does that, but it doesn't only do that. It also focuses Hannah's attention on how this is what God typically does, not just for her, but for everyone. This is who God is. He is the one who raises the lowly up to the heights. So God's attention to her raised her awareness of God. Hannah is now able to connect her story to the story of what God is doing in a bigger way for the nation of Israel and for the entire world. Notice in verse 10, she's talking, not, she's talking on a cosmic level. She's talking, not just talking about her situation. She's talking about what happens to the ends of the earth. So God is, is connecting Hannah to the bigger story of what he has going on in his plan. And this bigger perspective that Hannah receives from, from getting God's good gift results in humility. Look at verse 3. She says, talk no more so very proudly. And literally in Hebrew, this is talk no more so high, so high. So you see the, almost the irony there. God has raised her up, but she's not going to allow that to, to, uh, to make her raise herself up. God has raised her up, and that's going to cause her to be humble. Talk no more so high, so high. This made me think of Mary's song in Luke chapter 1, what we often call the Magnificat. We, we sang that last week, in fact. Um, and, and, and a lot of um, people who have compared these two songs think that Mary is basing her song on Hannah's song, which is an interesting connection between Old Testament and New Testament. But Mary has a lot of the same points in her song of praise when she's told that she as well will have a child. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, Mary says. And notice what she says next. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, meaning herself, 
And skipping down a little bit to verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So like Hannah, Mary is an unlikely candidate for God's favor, and yet she receives that favor, and her gratitude produces humility. And her gratitude, I think, also produces for us a very eloquent lesson about uh, our attitude when we receive good gifts from God. Notice the eloquence with which Hannah and Mary speak after receiving this, these favors from God. And I would suggest as our first point that we are never more wise and we are never more eloquent than when we are truly grateful. We're never more wise and never more eloquent than when we are truly grateful for the good gifts that we've been given. And I think Hannah and Mary teach us that our very ordinary stories, as small and insignificant as they may seem to us, but our ordinary stories that we can tell of the times that God has shown his grace to us can be a powerful teaching tool to others. Think about how many people have read about Hannah's story, the act of God giving her a child, how many people that story has touched and empowered and lifted up and brought to faith even. So our ordinary stories of God's mercy to us are a powerful teaching tool to others. Well, that's our first point. God writes lofty songs for lowly singers. Second point I wanted to suggest about Hannah's song is that God reverses human priorities and possibilities. God reverses human priorities and possibilities. And for this point, we're going to look at the middle section of the psalm, which we haven't talked about too much. Starting in verse 4, going through verse 8. Let's look at these verses one more time. The bows of the mighty are broken. So this is a military image, right? The, the bow and arrow of a mighty warrior. The bows of the mighty are broken. The feeble bind on strength. The picture is of a feeble person being able to strap on armor and be a strong warrior. So there's a reversal there. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, meaning they have nothing. So those who are full are now empty. Those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren, the infertile woman, has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. So all of these are examples of reversal, of someone's life condition being completely flipped on its head. The Lord kills and brings to life, verse 6. He brings down to Sheol, that was the Hebrew conception of the afterlife, the grave. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. So every single verse here is about this idea of reversal. So this great reversal, this great leveling of the playing field that Hannah is talking about is, is a way of describing how God is going to flip around these dominant structures in the world that are designed to keep the rich rich and the poor poor and the great great and the lowly lowly. God has another plan for the world other than the way that the world is. God is not bound by the way things are. The way things are is not the way things always have to be. 
Hannah is saying. In fact, Hannah suggests, if you look at verse 8, the second part of verse 8, she suggests that the world is founded upon a very different order, that the thing that the world is founded upon, the foundation, the pillars of the earth, is justice, not this inequity. Notice how she phrases it. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for, or because, why is that the case? The pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on him he has set the world. So I think the causal connection that Hannah's making is that the, the, the just way that God envisions is what he, in fact, founded the world on. And we're the ones who've messed that up. We've made things unequal through our selfishness and sin and violence. But God has founded the world upon something very different. God is not bound by the way things are, and that should be a great comfort to his people. But too often, we his people, we as Christians, I think, suffer from a lack of imagination when it comes to this sort of thing. We kind of assume that the way things are is the way things ought to be, especially if we think we're doing pretty well. I think this mentality, this lack of imagination, where we just assume that the way things are is the way things should be, is illustrated really well by, by Saul. So if you go a little bit, a few chapters later in the book when Saul is king, um, remember what he says in that famous story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17? Uh, David has volunteered to go and fight the giant. And Saul has, has some choice words for David before he's going to let that happen. Saul says to David, you are not able to go and fight this Philistine. And then he lists off all the military strategic reasons why. You're not able. That is not the way the world works. A little guy like you, David, cannot take on Goliath. That's the way things are. The mighty are mighty, the lowly are lowly, and that's just how it is. And he's, he's crunched the numbers, and David cannot beat Goliath. But David says, well, the way things are is not the way things have to be, because God founds his kingdom on a very different order. God's logic is not man's logic. And David's not saying, I'm in fact secretly a better fighter than Goliath is. That's not his point at all. He's saying, by God's calculation, things are completely different. God flips things on their heads. He said to the Philistine later on in the chapter, you come to me with the sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. The Philistine has all these weapons, these huge weapons. David has a name. Those, that's the, the weapons of choice. A name versus these three mighty symbols of military power. But in fact, what David has is better because the Lord saves not with sword and spear. The battle is the Lord's, and he will give Goliath into David's hand. And of course, we know that that's in fact how the story turns out. But notice Saul's words, you are not able. Saul has a failure of imagination, and it's one that I think we're all guilty of from time to time. How many times have we said this? You are not able. I am not able. And in a certain sense, that's true. But sometimes what we forget to follow up with is, but God is able. Christians must pray and act and live with the conviction that God is going to transform the status quo. This is what Jesus was trying to say in the Sermon on the Mount, right? God is going to transform the way things are. Blessed are you who are poor. What? 
Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. That's exactly what Hannah said. Remember? Those who are hungry are full. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and revile you, because your reward is great in heaven. You see the the point? The way things are is not the way things will always be. God will transform the status quo. God will reverse human priorities and possibilities. And Jesus then flips the script, if you keep going, right? But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Oh, this is the one that hits home a bit for me, right? Because that's what, that's what we all crave, right? We want people to speak well of us. We want approval. We want validation. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. So God's reversal that he has in store for us, it's an occasion for both hope and for repentance, depending on which side of this calculation you fall on, right? Now, we read the Beatitudes and the Woes, and we like to identify with the first group, right? That, well, that's who we are. We're the poor, the hungry, the weep, the weeping, um, the reviled, who are going to receive our consolation eventually. But what if we're on the other side? Those words are for us as well. And which words, in fact, describe us better? Do we kind of like the status quo? Do we kind of like it? the way things are shaking out for us right now. Do we share the same priorities as God? Or do we share the same priorities as God's enemies? So returning back to verse 6, there's a, there's a really powerful image of the, what this reversal that God has in store is going to look like. Verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, or the grave, and raises up. Hannah in the Old Testament, notice, points to the idea of resurrection. And that, of course, is the greatest reversal of all that we confess as God's people. Our faith in God's power over death, which has been shown first and foremost in the resurrection of Jesus, is the ultimate rejection of the way things are in this world. That's the ultimate renunciation of the world's priorities and possibilities. We confess that God raises the dead, and it doesn't get any more countercultural than that. It doesn't get any more uh, resistant to the world's ways than confessing that God raises the dead, that God will bring his people to life. So what does resurrection look like for us on a daily basis? If, if we are people of resurrection, if we are people like Hannah who confessed the Lord kills and brings to life, that the Lord raises up, what does that mean in practice? Well, Paul talks about this a little bit in Colossians chapter 3, in a text we probably know pretty well. But Paul wants to tease this out for the Colossians. He says, yeah, you believe in resurrection. Here's what that means right now. If you have been raised with Christ, Paul says... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So Christ has inaugurated God's resurrection life, and we're supposed to be participating in that. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And here's the nitty-gritty now. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He covers a lot of it right there in just those few words, right? Resurrection life looks like that, or rather doesn't look like those things. So if we are people who confess that God reverses human priorities, God reverses human possibilities, God is in fact is a God of resurrection, these are the kinds of things that we are doing to show our, that belief, to demonstrate that belief by faith. We abstain from these things that demonstrate our self-will and our commitment to the way the world typically works. Resurrection changes our priorities, and resurrection gives us the power to live differently, to live selflessly. All right, well, our final point that, I, that we're going to make from Hannah's prayer, and there's many more that we could make, but one that I think we, is really key, is that human strength, Human power is owed to God's mercy. Human strength is owed to God's mercy. This comes out really at the beginning and the end of Hannah's prayer. Verse 1, my heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord. And then skip down to verse 10, the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, of course, we need to define what we mean by horn, right? Um, I'm reading an E.B. White book with the kids right now. You know, E.B. White wrote Charlotte's Web, Stuart Little. He wrote another book called The Trumpet of the Swan. Anybody ever read Trumpet of the Swan? Okay, don't spoil it for me. We haven't gotten to the end yet. Um, it's only been out, what, 40 years at this point? Um, but the whole idea is that um, there are these trumpeter swans, that these majestic creatures, and one of the most distinctive characteristics, the characteristic that gives them their name, is the majestic sound they make when they're in flight. It sounds to, to many humans like a trumpet is blowing, that they have a horn blowing. And the, the protagonist is, is a, a, a swan, a trumpeter swan, who has no voice, and so he has to find his voice. And we haven't gotten there yet, but I am told that, or at least from the cover, from context clues, that he, he gets a trumpet, and his trumpet becomes his voice. So he has a horn, that allows him to be majestic and graceful like his other companions. So it's, the cover is a picture of a swan gliding on a lake with a trumpet tucked under his wing. That's not the kind of horn we're talking about, though. I say all that to say that's irrelevant. Because we're, we're talking about a different kind of horn. Uh, what's the other kind of horn we could be talking about? Like an animal horn, right? Yeah, like a, like a unicorn. Uh, but the kind of horn that's probably being talked about it would have been animals native to Israel, like um, an ox, a ram. These would have, the, the horn of these animals would have been symbols in that culture of great strength and power. So a, maybe a dynamic translation of this would be, my power is exalted in the Lord, or the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed one. So the horn is a symbol of power. And so what's Hannah's point by using this image of the horn twice? Hannah's power to conceive, how much did she have to do with that? How much could she control that? 
She really didn't have any control over that. She obviously wanted it to happen, but she couldn't do it. She, was, she did not have any control over that biological process. Hannah's power to conceive clearly came from God. There was no other explanation for that, right? Hannah's power to conceive clearly came from God and not from her own skill or effort. So God is the one who exalted her strength by allowing her to conceive. But surprisingly, Hannah claims that that very same truth is true of human leaders as well. We can well concede that point in the case of Hannah's infertility. Hannah's power to conceive clearly had to come from outside of her. That had to be God, right? But she said that same truth holds in verse 10 for all the leaders of the world as well. And that's a point that we don't always as readily concede. We are accustomed to thinking that political power comes from somebody's charisma or skill or rhetoric or tactical abilities. That's just the way that we typically assume. We vote for one politician and not another because they are more capable of governing, right? Who is the more capable governor? That's why we watch all these uh, debates a year and a half before the election, right? We want to know who's the most capable, who has the most innate talent. And Hannah says, no, no, rulers are no more capable of ruling well or of being a fit leader than I am of choosing to conceive. She had no power to do that, and she says the world's leaders have no more, no more power than that either. That's a surprising claim, but it's one that as Christians I think we have to acknowledge and to agree with her about. The key idea is found in verse 9, not by might shall a person be mighty, or not by might shall a person prevail. That's a paradox that is also true. Not by might shall a person be mighty. This is what Jonathan, David's friend, demonstrates in chapter 14. This is kind of a preview of the David and Goliath story. Jonathan kind of uh, enacts the David and Goliath story before it ever happens in chapter 14. When he takes on impossible odds against the Philistines, he says to his armor bearer, come, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, you know, the Philistines far outnumber them, and he says, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So where does power come from for battle, Jonathan says? Well, it comes from the Lord. It's not that he has picked a strategic spot from which to attack the Philistines, and he's going to use superior swordsmanship, and his armor bearer is going to use superior shieldsmanship, to defeat the Philistines. He says, That's, that comes from God. Nothing can save, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And Jonathan later on is going to remind David of this fact. We think of David as a paragon of faith in 1 Samuel, but even David has his moments of discouragement. And Jonathan goes out into the wilderness and finds David when he's at one of his low points. And Jonathan goes to David at Horash and strengthens his hand in God. It's a powerful expression, that, or I think Jonathan is reminding David of this truth that he already knows, that his strength comes not from himself, but from God. And obviously, the ultimate example of this avoidance of self-reliance, the ultimate example of this trust in God to overcome our crises comes from Jesus himself. Think of Jesus in the garden the night before his death. Think of those prayers that he was offering when he would go a, a little ways away from his disciples, when they were falling asleep. 
He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, Luke 22 says. He kneels down and prays, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And in Luke's gospel, there's an additional detail that I think is really powerful. Right after that prayer, where Jesus renounces his self-will, renounces his trust in himself, it says, there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. So where did Jesus' strength come from? And we're talking about Jesus here, who legitimately could have exercised his own strength and power as God. But Jesus renounced his self-will and his uh, self-exaltation and relied on God's strength to get through this trial. His acceptance of the cross embodies this idea of power in weakness that Hannah has been talking about. Jesus' willingness to go to the cross shows that he is able to empty himself in a way that we are all called to follow. We're going to look at one final passage, one that um, Paul is actually, our, our own Paul, um, has already alluded to, in which the Apostle Paul talks about the foolishness of the cross, and this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we won't read all of this, um, Paul's already done that, and, but, but Paul says here, man, that's really confusing, Paul, 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 Paul. <laughs> the word of the cross, or the message of the cross, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is, notice, the power of God. The cross, this ultimate example of weakness, this embodiment of loss and shame and lowliness, is to us the power of God. We preach Christ crucified, he says later in verse 23, which is Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Those are easy words to read, but they are such difficult words to trust and to live out. Renouncing the ways of this world that depend on security and strength and practicality and self-reliance and embodying the way of the cross. This is the hard saying of following Jesus that I think so many of those who heard Jesus could not accept. And it's one that continues to turn so many people away today. And may that not be true of us. Can we renounce our self-will? Can we truly be people of the cross who, like Hannah, recognize that our power does not come from ourselves, that without God's grace, without God's favor toward us, we could be nothing and do nothing, that we would simply remain lost in sin, lost in self-will and in self-interest? But paradoxically, I think Paul shows us here that renouncing our self-will Letting go of our plans and our self-reliance is, in fact, the path to greatest liberty. To be counted weak and to be counted lowly for God is, in fact, true strength. And it's that strength um, that we um, point everyone here to today. Uh, we obviously want to conclude every service that we have here by reminding everyone of the truth of the gospel, that Christ has come into the world to save sinners, of whom we all can rightly say we are chief, and that in his grace, 
that we are granted the ability to die to sin, to die to self, and to be raised to walk in newness of life. And that that, in fact, the, the, the road to the cross is the path to true strength and to true life. This is what I think Hannah can teach us. And I hope that her song has been encouraging to you and that you will reread it and that it can be a source of encouragement to you no matter where you are in your walk with God. If there's something we can do to encourage you in your walk with God, whether that's asking for the prayers of the church or if you would like to commit your life to God in baptism and discipleship, there's someone who would uh, be happy to help you with that. Um, if you just make your needs known by coming to the inner circle as we stand and sing.